0: Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, JD Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms, we talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through Through a mental mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to
1: change the narrative? We are so excited to have Dr. Chris Hoff on our show today. Chris is a storyteller, a champion of curiosity, an author, entrepreneur, an artist, an innovator, an educator, and the founder and host of the very popular Radical Therapist podcast, He also is the founder and executive director of the California Family Institute in Costa Mesa, a nonprofit organization that provides desperately needed, no and low care counseling for the community. We are honored to have you on. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Susie. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. And hi, JD.
1: Hey there, what's happening? So
0: it's low cost care.
2: Yes, right. low cost, low and no. Nobody's turned away, no matter what they can afford.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. We read that you dropped out of high school, then worked in the aerospace and defense industry. Now you're the radical therapist. How how did this happen? And tell us what makes you radical.
2: Yeah, I'm impressed. You did your research.
1: Yes,
2: <laughs> yes, I did have a checkered educational career as a young person um, for various reasons. <laughs> Uh, but I did. I did leave high school. I got kicked out early. They tried to send me to continuation school and that didn't work either. But uh, uh, that's a, another story. But yeah, but eventually what happened to me, I'm in recovery. So I eventually ended up getting clean and sober. And, and then I went back to school and uh, started a company that uh, did technology staffing Um but I, you know, I did work in the aerospace. I started, you know, I worked there and doing that same kind of work and then left and started my own company. And then um, ended up getting a psychology degree, undergrad, and wanted to, knew I wanted to be a therapist someday. And But I had this successful company. By the time I actually eventually left, it was about 200 employees. And I called it the golden handcuffs. I couldn't really leave. <laughs> so something happened. I actually... Um, at about 2007, uh, I had a friend die by suicide and um, and it kind of, you know, rocked me a little bit uh, and had me reflecting on my own life and what I wanted to do. And that prompted me, you know, shortly thereafter to go to my business partners and just say, hey, I'm, I'm out. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go back to grad school and become a therapist. and and did that and got a master's degree at Pepperdine and went on to get a PhD and, um, and then found California Family Institute. And yeah, I haven't looked back since and, and I'm having a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, I think that we have an idea of, uh, what makes you radical
2: your, uh, <laughs> your
0: journey alone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I stole that. Yeah. And that's been a lot of fun. That has really opened up my world a lot. And, you know, I've made friends all over the world really. Um, uh, and that's been exciting, but I kind of stole the radical therapist from, there used to be a journal back in the early seventies put out Excellent. by, yeah you know, the APA and they, it was called the radical therapist uh, was the journal. And, uh, and I found a book actually an old book and I used bookstore called the radical therapist and I got it, bought it mm-hmm. and read it. And, and I knew when, when some friends came to me and said, you know, you should do a podcast. I knew I already had the title, right? Cause I, 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 yeah. I knew ah. I was going to be sooner or later. So yeah. That's that's genius right that's there. That's awesome. Man, what a mind you have.
0: I'm so sorry about your friend. That is horrible and I totally understand having that experience. In 2017, you were in front of the Museum of African American History and Culture. Mm-hmm. You stated something very clearly. You said we need to start having difficult conversations about race, mm-hmm. white fragility, and white
2: privilege. Mm-hmm.
0: What was your intention then and how's it going?
2: For the listeners, J.D.'s referencing a video I put out on YouTube where I was in D.C. and had an opportunity to attend the museum. And and at that time, I was doing a, kind of my own work, quite honestly. And um, I had this, it, I think it was kind of this culmination of this process. When I went into, I'll tell the story this way. When I went into yeah, sure. my graduate program, I would have told you I was going to be an existentialist therapist, right? A, meaning making was really important. And Um, but then I got involved. I, it was actually, um, I ended up having a mentor, uh, a woman of color who was, you know, 10 years younger than me. (laughs) And so, but she was very, still is very influential in my life. And, uh, and she was involved in this group called the, she was faculty advisor to the social justice collaborative that was at Pepperdine at that time. And she got me involved. And then I just, that was the, what I'd learned in that process was that not everybody's free to make meaning, right. That there, there are constraints to meaning making and, and they're and they take the form of like racism and sexism and uh, ageism and you know all of that stuff and so um then it became important to me to you know do my own work look at my own how my own privilege and fragility plays out in the world and I'm in my own how my own whiteness and how i support you know systems of racism <laughs> and so Uh, And that's still ongoing. I don't think that'll, I I hope it never ends. Right. And so I just, that's kind of ongoing. And, and so that was, I think, you know, 2016 was, and even 15, the election, running up to the election. Mm -hmm. For sure. People were reeling and, um, and I felt like there needed to be more white voices, you know, talking to white people about like privilege and fragility and how whiteness and its role in the world. I think that it's incredible, you know. There's not a
0: lot of white men stepping out to do that, so that was really impressive to me, you know. And since we started this conversation, let's talk about the psychological impact of racism through your clinical lens. Yeah. Talk to me about that.
2: Well, I, it's everywhere, right? I, I mean, it. Um, you know, I. You know, I've taken since I got introduced to let's say, uh, modes of working like narrative therapy or narrative practice where or collaborative therapy. Some of these therapies that we're really kind of looking at how problems are uh, created in a social-cultural context, right? And so so it's not, you know, I've moved very far away from that kind of privatizing problems like, yes. you know, and, and using pathology or diagnosis and that kind of thing to really kind of locating problems in these larger um you know cult, social cultural context right so 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 anybody coming into my office i'm looking at even, even white if a white person like how you un- un- unaware of their own whiteness and how that or their own white like a white male or their own patriarchal practices right how they're playing out so over time i i i got an education about how you know, racism and like all, all the isms that play out are, are create problems in people's lives. Right. And right. and I really was uh, appreciative of that new lens that I was giving because, you know, um, I think, unfortunately, our field uh, privatizes or individualizes a lot of problems that are, that are born in our larger social context. Right. Yes.
0: Yes. No, but absolutely. Sure. And You know, the idea that having the privilege to tell your story, that's something that's missed clinically. You know, the idea that, you know, narrative is often you just do this and you just do that. You know, when you're part of the marginalized and oppressed population, there is no just do this and just do that. You know, There's an oppressive way that we walk through the world. We internalize the oppression and we turn on each other in a way that we were taught to. And we have to unlearn that. Mm-hmm. And it's a process. And if the clinical lens is jaded and it's one-dimensional, it's unethical in my opinion.
2: No, I, I agree. And I, I didn't want to collude with that or I didn't want to... No, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. No, I know. And I, I didn't want to, that's why I wanted to learn more because I didn't want to, yeah, yeah. I didn't well I think you said it perfectly. I didn't want to just say, hey, just do that and go out back out and, you know, because then I'm not, that's not helpful at all, right?
0: Exactly. When
2: you're sending somebody out into systems that are, you know, not being changed in any way, right? Right. Absolutely. And so. You're making it about them and not the system, right? Well, that's it. Exactly. Right. That's it. Exactly. And, you know,
0: the idea that people have people of color in their practices and they don't they don't address the racial trauma. How do you how do you manage that? You know the racial trauma from racism and white supremacy. How do you address that in your yeah, process? So
2: in our you know we did uh, um, we did some what do I want to call them salons last year California Family Institute around race and racial trauma. Uh, I do the podcast. Um, I have a partner that, you know, in the podcast, Brian Doster is a black man, and he talks a lot about, you know, we just did a podcast on racial trauma and stuff. So I'm trying to, you know, make... Room for those voices and to to do an education and and the thing you I think you'll discover or have discovered in doing a podcast is that you learn in every one right and so yeah (laughs) yeah so you get to bring uh, the guests on you want to talk to and get an education at the same time so uh, so it's a thing that you know COVID slowed us down we were doing monthly kind of events and um, but I I imagine we'll get back to them and and I think more people are picking it up there's there's a a lot more opportunity for education out there there than there was maybe five years ago I'm sure you've noticed as well.
0: Yeah I have it concerns me a bit about who's you know it's the it's the moneymaker now the racial conversation concerns me um, because you know historically uh, people in the Caucasian community listen to people in the Caucasian community. And that's not always the best teacher for something that they haven't experienced. For sure, And so that's of concern to me. I'm concerned about how this is going to progress yeah. and if there's going to create space for the real voices who can teach. Yeah. So I appreciate what you're saying, how you yeah, feel about it.
2: And I try to acknowledge that like on the podcast we did with, uh, on racial trauma, I didn't, I didn't participate in and I stepped out mm-hmm. and Brian, Brian did it. So uh, for you. Uh, I try to uncenter center myself as much as possible in, in a lot of awesome. these conversations. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Respect on that. Yeah. I read on social media, a clinic, you know, that's uh, the uh, clinician's threads, mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while I get dragged on yeah. and um, I just happen to be reading along. On
1: Facebook. And,
0: yeah. Well, they're everywhere, but, um, yeah. but this one was on Facebook and a, and a white male clinician said, he wasn't sure if racism was a thing. And then I asked if he saw clients of color. And he said, yes, absolutely. And I said, that's unethical.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That didn't go over too well, as you can imagine. What What are your thoughts on that? And how do you, yeah, how do you respond to that, basically?
2: Yeah, that's a big question. And, but I don't think, it, I, I, in some ways, I don't think it is, because I think I'm in the same, I hold the same values and uh, Prince, uh, that you do in that way that um, it is. I do believe it to be unethical um, uh, if uh, if you're not if you're th- trying to you know do, do away with race as a, a problem in our country I mean at this point can anybody I mean it's just yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean uh, I think the veil has been pulled away from that you know well a long time ago but I mean yeah, for everybody now I don't I don't think you can avoid that and I I'll say this without even getting into the like the conversation around race can get tricky, right? Um, You know, the fragility. I'm sure you experienced it, right? When you, oh yeah, oh yes, when you commented (laughs) that. So my my way around that would be maybe to begin the conversation is to to maybe acknowledge that maybe this person is privatizing problems that are in the larger social context right and mm-hmm. maybe not naming it racism in the beginning i don't some mm-hmm. people might totally disagree with me on that yeah but i'm trying to learn how to talk to white people that um they go defensive like right away right and so right um i think it's an experimentation at this time but but i would try to attack do you like maybe come at him like would do you believe it uh, unethical to not acknowledge the larger social context of people's lives in the work that you do yeah. and then maybe start there
0: you know, and I, I think at one time I was there where I wouldn't call it what it is yeah. and trying to, you know, ease into a side door, yeah. but I've just seen too many people who look like me getting murdered yeah. and uh, I've lost my filter
1: yeah.
0: now. It's, it's uh, I'm, I'm unapolog- unapologetically labeling and naming what I see as the challenges and I'm challenging, you know, the white dominant culture right now, dominant culture yeah. to uh, step up. You know, uh, put action. What are you doing? And I I ran a a group for clinicians who desire to be anti-racist in their practice. Mm -hmm. And I said, one of the things I posed was, how, what does your website look like? What is, what is your social media presence look like? Are you talking about racism? Mm -hmm. Because if you're not, your silence is louder, you know, and everybody went back and revisited their, how they were, how they appeared. I said, do you want to put out what you stand for? You you would put, you know, something clear about pedophiles, something that is, you know, (laughs) very blatant. If you saw something happening, then why not?
2: Yeah, and I think absolutely and I think personally I have become over the years more explicit, right? By you know the video that you mentioned and then even at California Family Institute we you know have a Black Lives Matter flag, you know flag on our website front and, front and center and we have a pride flag and we have a trans flag and so we try we're trying to be really explicit about who we are and where we stand. Um I think sometimes in the small, I, I mean, maybe I'm just, you know, how do, how do we have those conversations? I'm still trying to figure it out because I've experienced the same thing, the defensiveness and people just shutting yeah. down and, and not wanting to engage. And I, I just trying to find a way and just haven't yet. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: No, I totally understand that. And, I, and one of the things that I had talked about in this uh, group that I ran was the idea that we grow in relationships. And so we also influence in relationships. And so in storytelling. You know, when you tell the story of oppressed people, someone without a heart is the only person that's not going to (laughs) feel, you know, they'd have to be, you know, pathological and we're not going to change that anyway. So basically that's the way in. But the thing that got me was like the audacity of, you know, not a thing. And, you know, it's like, really? (laughs)
2: Really? You know, I couldn't. You you should see the hate I get on my YouTube channel. If if the listeners want to just go see, I did a, you know, for example, I did a video on patriarchy and I still get a bunch of hate about that. And I got hate. You know, I get called a racist by doing that video that you mentioned, you know, mostly by white men. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) So, uh, so you know, there, yeah, it's just, it's hard sometimes with some people. Yeah it's very
0: difficult. You know, what do you think clinicians can do to make mental health more equitable and inclusive?
2: That's a great question because I hold two thoughts. And one is that it has to, you know, the, my elevator pitch for California Family Institute is that at least in the state of California, the California commission did a study. It's probably three or four years old now where half of adults who sought mental health services didn't receive them. And then two thirds of children meaning zero age zero to seventeen who sought mental health services did not receive them either so there obviously is a, a severe problem at least in our state for sure and I, I imagine it's you know worse in a lot of other states because California yeah. you know there's a joke that everybody has a therapist, but that's not true right <laughs> so but I also hold hold a thought that therapists should be paid for their work right that they they, you know, did paid for a lot of education. I know a lot of friends that have a lot of student loan debt, they have a lot of they should be. So we're going back to a systemic issue now, right? Like, how do we get our systems to support um, the people doing this work, first of all, which they don't, right? The the administrative uh, workloads, the the client workloads, and county funded or Department of DMH funded yeah, uh, yeah. services are, you know, they're just burning people out. I mean, I don't know people that last longer than two or three years. And, yeah. And what we've done at California Family Institute, because I had some, at least, you know, I had some business success in the past and I was able to kind of self-fund in the beginning. And so I stayed out of that system and that was kind of important. And so we can kind of do that and I don't have to uh, load up our clinicians with paperwork and and so they, you know what I mean? And all that kind of stuff, but that's a rare case, but I think it goes back to a systemic problem now. How do, so I think it's going to be about, I think therapists and you're seeing more um, uh, writing about this are going to have to be, politicians, be in the world, um, leave the four walls of the therapy room, go to the city council meetings, do that kind of stuff, right? I think more and more we're going to have to do that to support our field and, uh, and the people that are not getting the services.
0: Right, yeah. right. Yeah. No, I think that's an excellent perspective and, and right on point. You know, the idea that therapy is not political is the right. most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You know, it's like, then where do we leave our authentic selves? <laughs> did, right. did we leave them at the door?
2: Well, I, I tell the people I train, there's no such thing as a neutral question. Every, ah, question well, every question you ask is coming from somewhere and some, and you can trace it back to politics, I would say, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and I also think it's important to know who you can do therapy with and who you can't do therapy, you know, with in terms of our own ethical responsibility, You know, I'm not the therapist for someone who espouses white supremacy or someone who's an extremist of, you know, even Farrakhan. I couldn't be his therapist. So there's there's people you know you shouldn't have as clients. And it bothers me that people won't be honest about that. And the students I teach, that is what I talk about. We all have our limitations Mm -hmm. and we have to be honest about that because that's how we get into our ethical realm. (laughs) It's like we can't separate ourselves. Everything has to be conscious. Mm -hmm. So that's my little soapbox. Feel
1: and no, but JD to that point, and Chris, you know, I so appreciate everything you're saying, and we have some things in common where both of us um, I'm not sure how old you were when you went to get your PhD, but that you had a career before that, as I did. And when I went to grad school, JD was the woman who made such an impact on me, she was a professor and taught me about my whiteness that I didn't even, even though I thought. Oh, I'm. There's not a racist bone in my body. I learned real quickly that my whiteness covered that up, and I really was in a totally different place of privilege. Didn't even know what that word is. Right. So, from one person, one white person to another, how has your relationship with your whiteness changed over the
2: years? Um, that's a great question. I do a presentation every once in a while on. I'm forgetting their name. They do a white identity scale and they talk about, yeah. Yeah. So I kind of use that as a structure to take people through my own experience of whiteness. And, um, back to my earliest memory, I was probably 13, 14 when a friend of mine I grew up with, I grew up in Huntington beach, California, and I was surfing and this, this friend, he wasn't a close friend, but he was a, you know, a surfer friend. um, we were all in a park one day drinking some beers and he came rolling up and he said, Hey, I got a new tattoo. You want to see it? And he rolled up his arm and it was a swastika. <gasps> and uh, I've
1: actually heard you tell this story on the podcast.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so that was my first experience of I think of whiteness as, 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 that I could remember. So I, so I talk about that. And then I talk about kind of growing up. My father was an educator too. And, um, One of his assigned readings was, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so I I had some influence from him as well. But like I said, I think when I hit my grad program is really when my eyes got opened. And I also, you know, and I went through the destabilization period and, you know, I'm sure, you know, struggled with my own acknowledgement of privilege and uh, defensiveness and uh, my own racism. Right. And and how that plays out. Uh, But you know, then I wanted to help or I wanted to do things differently and I wanted to make an impact. And that's kind of always been my guide. So. Mm.
1: Is there anything, no matter how small you're willing to do to end racism that you're not already doing?
2: Well, I just applied to, like I said, I'm trying to practice what I preach about, you know, I'll say this, you know, What was going on with the world, uh, like it happened to me, probably happened to a lot of other people. I began began to become overwhelmed, right? And that's one of those things. And so that renders you kind of, you know, and we don't need that, right? (laughs) We need people that could take action, like you said, even small actions in the world and whatever they can do. So, Uh, several months ago I decided you know this is the world's going the world's burning and I'm getting a little overwhelmed and I don't know where to start and so so I decided to make my world a little smaller and I'm going to be like okay how can I and that helped and then I decided I was going to do work in my community I was going to get it down to my community right not worry about the whole world burning and then Ah, uh, so just this week, I applied to uh, become to join be on the board of the Human Relations Task Force in the city of Huntington Beach, for example. So that's me stepping into my own city my own community and taking a role in a human relations, you know, which they are responsible whenever there's a hate crime or something like that. And so uh, that would be an example of something that I'm absolutely do it, trying yeah. to do. And, you know, um, and even in a small way. And I think if people just do that, I mean, it's, it's, the world is a little crazy right now and you can, it could get really overwhelming, but if you just try to take small steps like that, maybe in the, your circle of influence, I think it go very much go a long way.
0: Can I yeah. just jump in there for a second, Tuz? Um, You know, you say something that's so important, and that is that people wondered, um, however many years ago, well, where did the white hats of the Ku Klux Klan go? Mm-hmm. Where, where'd they go? They just seemed to disappear. And what people are just starting to acknowledge is they went to the city council. They went into Congress. They went into the Senate. They went to the police department, their judges. They went into the systems. Yes. Because they know infiltration is the tool of the oppressor. And so we have to take that same strategy and start to go infiltrate these systems and take them back. So I love what you're saying. Absolutely. yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love it too. And also, you know, as I said, JD, I've been part of her groups and there is no time, right? There is no time for neutrality. You have to take a stance, right? Okay, this is our favorite part of the show. I'm going to give you a couple words, and we just want one word response, word association. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, okay. White male privilege, truth, <laughs> feminist. Uh,
2: my mother. <laughs>
1: Nice. Change. Possible. Nice. Social justice.
2: Imperative.
1: Mm, Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Um,
0: You know, thanks so much for coming and chatting with us today. I really appreciate you taking the time and being flexible with the time. Sometimes Susie and I are tag teaming on the calendar and we can get in each other's way. So thank you so much for being flexible. I also want to know where people can find you and what you would like people to know as we uh, sign off.
2: Sure. Well, of course, there's californiafamilyinstitute.org if you're in the Southern California area or if you're anywhere in California now. We're doing a lot of virtual appointments. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you know somebody having trouble accessing care, uh, please send them our way Uh, if you're are interested in just me it's drchrishoff.com and of course the radical therapist podcast and youtube channel and some of the stuff that was talked about today you can you can find that there and i want to thank you both for the invite it's been a, it's been fun thanks
0: absolutely uh, and uh, one final thought mm-hmm. that i want to know from you is if you could do one thing to change the world what would it be
2: one thing to change the world what would it be I uh, I'm uh, I've kind of become this uh, from the position that um to change the world I got to change myself. Love it. Yeah, and so I think I need to keep doing my own learning, my own uncovering and uh, and then that will change and trust that that will change the world in some way.
0: Excellent. What an excellent way to sign off. It's been a pleasure. I, oh, I love Chris. Yeah. Love what you're doing. Totally appreciate your time. Hope we run into each other again. Yep. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.